We're going to read the scriptures together. It's nice to be with you to share the word of God this morning. We love the word of God in this place. And uh, uh, I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 32. Genesis, first book in the Bible. Nice, easy one to find. They ask you to find Habakkuk or something. That's a bit more difficult, isn't it? Genesis 32, beginning at verse 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called that place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. I want to just read one verse as well from... uh, Hang on, it's moving. It's going down. Is it that one? Okay, it'll end up down there. That's better. Thank you. Let's get it right at the start. That's what it is. Okay, I want to also just start by reading verse 32. Sorry, verse 1 from chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Some time ago, one of my daughters brought me a journal. I brought it along with me here. And uh, I keep it by my bed and use it to write jottings and what I think maybe might be uh, little words of inspiration that come to me just as I'm nodding off to sleep. Always seem to happen that way with me. So I keep it um, by my bed and I stop and I sit up and I write down the the little things that I'll forget by the morning. But I noticed uh, a few, uh, oh that's very kind, a few nights ago that um, the lines inside were rather thick. And I thought, my eyesight at my age isn't great anyway, but uh, I thought to myself, um, I wonder why those lines are so thick. 
So I took it in a better light with my proper reading glasses on, and I noticed there were little words making the lines of the journal. And when I looked closer, I noticed they were not just words, they were scripture, the Bible. And so I went back and read the introduction to the journal about, from, you know, the printers and all that, and discovered that the whole of the New Testament is written in tiny little words in the lines of my journal. Now, I quite liked the idea that all my inspired thoughts were being written right on top of Scripture. I rather liked that. I thought that was rather good. But the point I want to make is that I'd been writing in that for about a year, different thoughts. I'd been writing on those lines. I never noticed. It was right before my eyes, but I never noticed what was there. Isn't it amazing what can be right before us and we don't see it? We're sometimes so slow as Christians to grasp the spiritual resources that God has given us. It says in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The Bible says that he has made us more than conquerors through him that loved us. We don't have to live in despair and defeat and fear and anxiety because God has put around us his resources and the angels of God encamp around us. Now, Jacob at times in his life had seen the hand of God in his life. He had witnessed it. He had experienced it. It all began for him 20 years earlier when he was fleeing Esau and laid his head on a stone to sleep at a place called Bethel. God appeared to him there. He saw a vision of a ladder reaching up to heaven and the angels ascending and descending. And there God spoke to him for the first time in Jacob's experience. God said, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. Then in verse 15 of that chapter, he said, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. That was 20 years before. i just insert their little thought. How long has it been since you had an encounter with God? Since you, as the old hymn said, walked with the Lord? Is your experience 20 years old? Hope not. There were moments after Bethel that Jacob experienced, or should I say thought about, the hand of God on his life. But they were rare moments in the record at least. In Genesis 31 verse 42, Jacob reminds Laban, his uncle, that if it were not for God's protection, he would have left Laban empty-handed. There were those moments when he remembered the word of God and remembered his experience with God. But from what we read, 
the most of the 20 years between him leaving Canaan and we're having that experience at Bethel and going back, for most of that, Jacob just did things his way. I suppose Frank Sinatra's hit, uh, I Did It My Way, would just about fit him perfectly. Jacob's nature was self-reliance. It, it had been the driving force in his life, and it still is as he now prepares to meet Esau. Now let me just come back to chapter 32, verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. So when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means two camps or two hosts. One commentary on this says, so-called because either because the angels divided themselves into two companies and placed themselves some before and others behind him or some on each side of him or for his, because the angels made one host and his family made another. Whichever it was, Jacob had a powerful vision that God was with him. A host of angels were there to protect him. And compared to that, what was Esau and his 400 men? The Hebrew word for meet there, or some translations said angels met him, same word. In Hebrew, it's porgor, which means a meeting of great significance or an encounter of great purpose. The vision of the angels of God, a whole host of them there, was meant to be for Jacob of great significance, of great purpose, to show him that God was still with him, to show him that he was protected by far more than the forces that Esau had with him. But Jacob, it seems to me, missed the significance of it altogether. He saw the angels, but he didn't see the significance and the purpose. So what did Jacob do when he heard that Esau was coming with 400 men? He did what he'd always done. He put his own scheme and plan into action. He divided the company into two, sending large presents ahead to pacify and bribe Esau, keeping well in the rear himself. But what happened next was to be a life-changing event in life, for Jacob, one that was necessary. If Jacob was to fulfill the plan God had for his life. One writer um, says, God loves you right now, just as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay just as you are. Jacob had to change. Philippians 1.6 says, God has begun a good work in us and will bring it to completion. God hasn't finished with us yet. We need to change. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we have been transformed into his image in ever-increasing glory. Let me ask you a question this morning. What needs to change in your life for God's purpose to be fully seen? Verse 24. 
Jacob was left alone. Let's think about Jacob being alone. Finally, God had Jacob to himself. Free of business, free of distractions, free of the noise of the camp. It had been, as I said previously, 20 years since God got him in a place like this, where it was just God and him. Jacob was alone. For a deep experience of God, sometimes we just need to get alone with him. When I first met my wife, Jeannie, I, I've got a good memory for all those years ago. I'm not so good about yesterday, but you know what it's like as you get older. Um, there were four days between our first date and our second date. Then we saw each other about every two or three days. But within a couple of weeks, we were seeing each other every single night of the week. We'd become inseparable. Jeannie says it's because I knew I'd found an angel. <laughs> well, uh, there have been times I've seen the halo slip, love. Um, <laughs> but shouldn't our relationship with God be like that? That we just want to be in his presence. We want to seek him. We want to find him. Now, it's not a legalistic thing about, uh, it's not a competition how many hours we all spend with God in prayer. Who spends more than me? They're more spiritual. It's not that sort of thing at all. The psalmist said, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after thee. We need to have that desire. You see, times alone with God are special. When I, uh, before I went to Bible college, I was working in a factory. Um, and uh, I was up in the top floor um, on the sort of quality inspection side of it. And um, they had a big canteen there. So we had two 20-minute breaks each day. And uh, we'd all filed down. Everywhere would be empty in the factory except the canteen. But I got fed up of being in the canteen because there are always arguments going on, foul language, uh, not very nice stories. And so I made a decision. I took a flask in a, a, a satchel and uh, I took my little Bible. And uh, I, when everyone else went down, I sat in a corner on a seat and I just poured myself a coffee and I opened my Bible. I had 20 minutes twice a day. Now, I don't want to sound hyper-spiritual. It wasn't the only time I spent with God each day, but I added those two 20 minutes. And, and I used to mark my Bible. And looking back, I had more markings in my Bible during those 20 minutes as God's words seemed to jump out at me than any other time. And sometimes we, we just need to make time available to God, not just a in some legalistic way, but just desire his presence. Those times alone with God can be special. <clears throat> in Genesis 15, Abraham, as he was called then, um, had a, an encounter with God. God came to him and gave him a promise. In verse 4 of chapter 15, the promise was this, a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. 
in the camp with all the noise and the lights and the bustle, Abraham just couldn't grasp that. So it says that God took him outside, that's outside the camp, and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If you indeed can count them, then he says, so shall your offering, offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, it says, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He had to get alone, away from the, the pressures and, and the noise, get alone with God to grasp that promise from God. Times alone with God can be special. I want to tell you, I think today life's too busy. We folk are too busy. It's ironic, really. We work fewer hours than our forefathers. We have means of transport today that they could only dream of, which gets us from one place to another so fast that it would have taken them so long. We have more labor-saving devices than they ever had, but we have no time. My grandmother, bless her, I lived, we lived with her as children for the first six years of my life, and uh, I'd watch her on, on a Monday morning, it was wash day. She'd spend whole day washing, she'd heat up an old gas boiler and uh, put the whites in it and then rinse them and so on, and then the colors, and then she'd put them through an old mangle. Does some of you remember what an old mangle was like? That squeeze all the water out, then she'd hang them on the line. Then all day Tuesday, she'd be ironing. Two days to do the washing. Today, we throw it in an automatic washing machine that will not only wash it, it may dry it as well, and uh, it's all done. We've got on with something else. We have all these labor-saving devices, but we have no time. We need folk to make time. The truth is we all have the same allotted 24 hours a day. And as God's people, we need to spend time with him. In fact, God insists on it. You may not agree with this quote I'm going to give you from a commentary, but it says this, so what does God do if we won't slow down on our own? He'll step in and slow us down with a visit to the hospital or a family crisis or a financial disaster or any one of a thousand other crises that break into our little routine and force us to stop what we're doing and begin listening to God. Now, whether you, you agree with that or not, it does say in Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain, we may indeed wish that we were of so little account to God that he left us alone to follow our natural impulses and give up trying to train us into something so unlike our natural selves. But that is asking not for more love from God, but for less. Let's move on. Let's think about this wrestling with God. Jacob was all alone, but he was not alone. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Suddenly, someone stepped out of the darkness. 
and grabbed hold of him and wrestled with him and Jacob wrestled back. I think if someone stepped out of the darkness, grabbed hold of me, I'd faint on the spot. I wouldn't, but Jacob was made of sterner stuff. He wrestled back. All through the night they wrestled. And at some point, it doesn't tell us when, Jacob perceived that the one he was wrestling with was someone special. More than that, someone divine. The term theophany or Christophany are not theological terms every Christian will be familiar with. So let me just quickly deal with them. The definition of a theophany is an appearance of God in the Old Testament. There's a compound of two words, theo uh, meaning God and phaino uh, meaning to appear. So it simply means the theophany is God appearing. There are several examples, very quickly. Genesis 18, it says three men appeared to Abraham. Two were angels, we know that as they went on to Sodom to rescue Lot. The other was the Lord. He stayed and spoke to Abraham. It says, now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. You'll note there in your Bibles the word Lord, is in capital letters signifying that it's the name Yahweh, the name of God that is there. There are two other appearances, well, not just two, but many other appearances, appearances to Hagar, Moses, Joshua, and so on, of God in the Old Testament. Now, John 1.18 in the New Testament, the Gospel of John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So some uh, theologians like to call these appearances of God in the Old Testament Christophanes, the Son of God appearing uh, in the Old Testament. Now, with that out of the way, note something else. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Jacob didn't start this wrestling match. A man stepped out of the darkness and it says a man wrestled with him. Jacob didn't want any wrestling match that night. He didn't start it, wasn't looking for it. Jacob wasn't thinking about wanting anything from God, but God wanted something from him. That's why he started it. God wanted all of Jacob's proud self-reliance and fleshly scheming, and God came to take it by force if necessary. As we said, Jacob was a self-made man. He relied on his wits and cunning to get ahead. With his own quick thinking, he stole his brother's birthright. With his own deceit, he got his father to give him the firstborn's blessing. In Laban's employ, he cheated his uncle out of thousands of his flock to get back at Laban's own trickery. One commentary says, the point I want you to see in Jacob's life of deceit, first with his family, then with his uncle Laban, is this. Behind this deceit was the issue of pride. 
I would butt in the art of being a big shot, writes, the number one thing that stands in the way of our becoming more like Jesus is our pride. Pride is nothing more than the idolatrous worship of myself. And that is the national religion of hell. God hates pride. Remember that Jacob had shown himself to be more of a schemer than a believer, more carnal than spiritual, more a man of the flesh than a man of the spirit, a person who trusted himself rather than trusting God, a person who used the weapons of trickery and deceit rather than spiritual weapons of faith and prayer. God had to change that. Verse 25 says, When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched from the man. The, 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 his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. It may have seemed an equal struggle, but it was never so. At any time, God could have used his divine power to overpower Jacob. But during the struggle, Jacob was learning something. Jacob was learning that God was there. Jacob was learning that against the power of God, his strength was puny. For once, he couldn't overcome this one, as he had every other problem and person he'd face. I like this quote. By touching Jacob's thigh, he was touching at the point of his greatest strength. It was an acted-out parable. The thigh is the largest and strongest muscle in the body. The lesson was that when you wrestle with God, you always lose. Jacob asking for a blessing shows that he had learned that his strength was not enough. So often we wrestle with God instead of surrendering our pride and self-will. You may not have heard of Judson Van Deventer. But he wrote that lovely old hymn, I Surrender All. He was an artist and taught in all the schools in Michigan and Pennsylvania in America. But he was also active in his local Methodist church where they used to have what used to be called revival meetings, evangelistic meetings. And he was so good at being an evangelist and so powerful in God that so many others encouraged him in the church to become a full-time evangelist, give up his art and become an evangelist. But Judson also heard from God for himself. And I just say it's important if others tell you what you should be doing for God to hear from God for yourself too. But he'd heard from God for himself as well, but he loved his art and, and he loved his teaching. And for five years he struggled with obeying the, the leading of God to become an evangelist. Until one night, five years after, he took the step and surrendered all, became that evangelist. And that ministry took him all over the United States and England and Scotland, and he was very successful in winning others to Christ. Perhaps the most important influence, though, of Van de Venter was on a young evangelist called Billy Graham. Billy Graham cites this in uh, Crusade Hymn Stories. He says, one of the evangelists who influenced my early preaching 
was a hymnist who wrote I Surrender All, J.W. Van de Venter. He was a regular visit at the Florida Bible Institute in the late 1930s. We students loved this deep spiritual gentleman and often gathered in his winter home in Florida for an evening of fellowship and singing. Judson wrote of his struggle of the will of God, with the will of God, in that hymn, I Surrender All. Incidentally, sometimes in ministry, it's not what we accomplish ourselves that has the greatest fruit. Sometimes you look back on your ministry, you think, well, I didn't build any great castles or, you know, do anything massive in worldly terms. Sometimes it's the lives we touch for God and what they accomplish that we have a share in that really is the more amazing. Very few people have heard of Judson Van de Venter, but most people have heard of Billy Graham and millions of people have had their lives changed through Billy Graham's ministry. What a privilege he had to touch his life and his preaching and his evangelism. Just one other point that I'm, I'm, I'm drawing to a close. We often face great challenges in life and many battles in our ministries. And we strive and we struggle and we worry and we don't sleep at night. And we forget that the power of prayer is tremendous. Those times before the throne of God in prayer are powerful. Jacob was alone with God and he said, God, will you bless me? And the Lord blessed him. Hezekiah prayed, godly king Hezekiah, he prayed on his deathbed, said, Lord, remember me, I beg you. Um, I behave faithfully and sincerely, with sincerity of heart in your presence and done what you regard as right. And he wept. He was dying. God had told him he was dying through the prophet Isaiah. But Isaiah was leaving the palace after bringing that bad news and God spoke to Isaiah and he says, go back. And he said, I've heard Hezekiah's prayer. I've seen his tears. He will not die. He gave him 15 more years of life all because the man prayed and alone with God. Amazing what can happen when we pray. Hannah prayed for a son. She was infertile. But God answered her prayer. And Samuel, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, was born. God is longing to bless us. But sometimes he's more willing to bless us than we are. Open to receive the blessing. What we accomplish before the throne of God can be powerful. Let me conclude with this. Can you say this morning, in the words of the old hymn, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, Take me, Jesus. Take me now. I surrender all. Let's just pray together, please. Father God, we just pray this morning that 
You help us when we strive and struggle to obey you and to follow you or make time to be alone with you. And Lord, we just pray that you help us to stop pretending and stop being lukewarm and half-hearted and truly this morning come to you and surrender all of our lives to you. Give it to you afresh that, Lord, we might be real with you and know your blessing and fruitfulness in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.